That's Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. And the title of my sermon this morning is The Long Road to the Promised Land. The Long Road to the Promised Land. So Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, and read this way. And that, uh, can we actually stand for the reading of God's word? We won't be standing long, it's only a couple verses, okay? And it reads this way. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who was bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we pray, God, that uh, you would just be with us, God, that you would open up our eyes to behold wondrous things in this passage. I pray, God, that your name would be glorified, that your word preached through me would bring many people to faith and repentance, God. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us in our faith as we continue on our journey toward the promised land. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was a, a young man, I know I still look young, but I'm getting old, but when I was a young man, I used to spend my summers um, traveling out of state to play basketball. So I played with one of the local recreation centers here in uh, East Baltimore, Cecil Kirk Recreation. And one summer, we traveled to uh, Burlington, Vermont. Traveled by bus. The distance from, Burlington, from Baltimore to Vermont it was just under like 500 miles. It's about an eight-hour trip. Right, we traveled by bus. Now, keep in mind, our trip took a little, a little longer than expected. Right? Our bus driver got lost. We didn't have like Google Maps, you know, the iPhone map. Those things like weren't around back then. So our bus driver got lost. And what I do remember about that trip, like we eventually, you know, made it to. Uh, Vermont, but I remember when we got lost, we woke up in Canada. So I just remember, like, man, like, the mood of everybody on the bus changed. We were cold, tired, hungry. Like, whatever faith that we had in that bus driver to get us to uh, Vermont was lost when we woke up in Canada. <laughs> right? It, it, it was. I shared this story with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've envisioned this plan, this wonderful plan for your life, but it just hasn't turned out how you expected. Right? You look on show, uh, social media and you see people flourishing. You see people in the church flourishing. You see people in life in general. You look around and you just see how others are flourishing. And because you're not flourishing in that way, because you're not prospering in the way that you think you should, 
this has led to your discouragement. You've encountered some roadblocks, some detours. You think to yourself, I should be further along in life. I should be married. I should have children. I should have a house. My business should be much better than it's, than it's doing. Or maybe you've encountered uh, some hardships, maybe loss of a job, loss of a loved one, broken relationships, trouble paying the bills, difficulty caring for an elderly parent, and this has caused your discouragement. You see, in hardships, we're often tempted to lack commitment to God and his purposes for our life. When we find ourselves in difficult situations, we're often tempted to distrust God. We entertain the thought that surely God doesn't know what he's doing if he's allowed this pain and suffering to happen to me. Surely God doesn't, surely he can't be trusted if this and that has happened to me. Like, God, if I was in control, I would be flourishing. I would be much further along in life. One simple question I want us to ponder this morning is this. Do you trust God? On this long road to the promised land, will you trust God? This morning, we'll be in the book of Numbers. If you look back at the biblical storyline, God, he saved the people from out of Egypt. Right? They were slaves in Egypt. He performs this miraculous salvation by his power, delivers them from Egypt. He enters a covenant with them. Right? He gives them his law, so they're now his people. He's in this covenant relationship with him. This is how God always relates to people, through, through a covenant. So he enters this covenant with them. He gives them the law. He then gives them instructions on how to construct the tabernacle. And he gives them instructions on how to uh, construct the tabernacle because he wanted to dwell in the midst of his people. So all of this is detailed in the book of Exodus. At the end of Exodus, we see God's glory fill the tabernacle, right? And he's with the people. Now, in the next book, Leviticus, Leviticus explains to the Israelites how they ought to live in light of having this holy and awesome God in their midst. So in the book of Numbers, Numbers picks back up on the story of Exodus, or from the story of Exodus. Exodus, the people are still at Mount Sinai. This is where they were given the law. But Numbers, we see, we see their journey from Mount Sinai to the borders of the land of Canaan. Numbers details the account of Israel's history from Mount Sinai all the way to the promised land, the physical land of Canaan. It recounts their years in the wilderness, which was 40 years of Israel's history. Now, the wilderness wanderings that we see recounted in this book of Numbers was a time of transition and testing. You know, as God so often does, he, he tests his people. He tests us to see if we're, we're going to obey him. He tests us to see if we're going to be committed to trusting his rule and will for our life. We see this early on in the book of Genesis. When he created Adam and Eve, he places them in the garden, and he tells them, look, you can't eat from this tree. That was a test. But we know how that ended. They disobeyed. Right? They failed the test. And look, brothers and sisters, this has been the pattern of all humanity since Genesis 3. They didn't trust God's word. We don't trust God's word. 
We don't trust God's wisdom, his guidance. Because of sin, we have all grown suspicious of God's character. We think that God will not deliver on his promises. To put it plainly, we are all guilty of unbelief. We all fail the test. In the book of Numbers, we see the nation of Israel being tested in the wilderness. God called them to trust that he would bring them into the promised land. In Numbers chapter 15, verse 2, you may notice this phrase. It says, when you come into the land. This is a phrase that was familiar to the people of Israel. This was something that God told them throughout their journey toward the promised land. Brothers and sisters, these are words of of grace. God speaking these words to the people reassures them that he's going to do exactly what he promised, to bring them into the promised land. But you see, despite God's words of assurance, the people are guilty of unbelief. In fact, the first 25 chapters of Numbers, it actually describes the rebellious generation that were kept from entering the promised land. And look, the main point I want, I want to communicate to you guys this morning is this. The road to the promised land is difficult. It's an arduous journey. There will be setbacks. There will be failures. There will be trials of every kind. However, we must exercise faith in God. We must trust God to bring us to the promised land. Not trusting in God will keep you out of the promised land, the promised land of heaven. I believe this passage that we have before us this morning is written for our instructions so that we might not desire evil like the wilderness generation. It warns us not to fall into the same pattern of unbelief as the people in the wilderness. But at the same time, it should also encourage us to trust in God because he's faithful. I want to highlight this contrast here that we see in this passage between Israel's unfaithfulness, right there, rebellion, and God's faithfulness. I see Israel's unfaithfulness on display in two ways. One, the people are impatient with God. Two, the people complain about God. So let's look at the text, starting in verse 4. It reads, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. Everybody say impatient. Impatient. Turn to your neighbor and ask them, are you impatient? I don't have to turn to my wife. She knows. She knows I'm impatient. So me and my family, we would often frequent uh, Walmart that's in Lansdowne. Right, and this is the super Walmart that's located on Washington Boulevard. Now, forgive me for what I'm about to say about this store. If you work there, please forgive me. But in all my years of going there, this has to be the worst managed store I've ever been to. And let me paint the picture for you. You know about it. Okay. So it's, I guess it's like, what, 15 registers in there, it seemed like? Something like that, right? But only every time you go in... And this has, been, this has been years. I haven't been there since. But every time you go in there, it seems like there's only three cashiers working. I'm not a mathematician, but that's just not a good ratio. Right? Three cashiers. So you can imagine when it's time to check out, you know, the lines are long because it's only three working cashiers out of 15 lines. Now, my wife is a thorough shopper. 
So this Walmart, this is a super Walmart. That's a lot of ground to cover. And she does a good job every time when we would go there covering all of that ground. <laughs> so that's like, you know, that's close to two hours that we, that we in there shopping. I love you. She know I'm telling the truth, though. Um, so after shopping with her and then making your way up to the checkout line, again, there's only three available. So all of those lines are long, so that's another hour in the line. So that's like a three-hour trip. So you can only imagine how impatient I was on my trips to Walmart, right? Now, when I'm impatient, I'm really not the best person to be around. If I'm tired, I'm hungry and stuff like that, and I'm trying to like hurry up and get home, like I'm just not. The text says that the people were impatient on the way. Let's define, let's define impatient. According to Oxford, the Oxford Dictionary, impatient is defined in this way. It says this, having or showing a tendency to be quickly irritated or provoked. Some synonyms for impatient are annoyed, angry, displeased, discontented, peeved, grouchy, grumpy. All of these things describe me and all, when, every time I went to Walmart. <laughs> it's just true. But again, our text says the people were impatient. On the way, I'm reading from the ESV Bible. Other translations say that the people became impatient because of the journey. I like how the KGV puts it when it says, the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Now, just why were the people discouraged? Why were the people impatient? Well, if you notice in verse 4, it says that the people had to go around the land of Edom. You see, back in chapter 20, verses 14 through 20, we see that the, the king of Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. Because they were not allowed to pass through the land of Edom, this made their journey much longer. They had to actually turn away from the promised land and go back toward the wilderness. And that, it just made that journey longer. And this led to their discouragement. This caused their impatience. This caused their frustration. On their journey through the wilderness, the people had experienced many difficulties and discouragement, and yet here comes another one. And this led to their being impatient. What difficulties or challenges in life are you currently facing that may be causing you to lose faith in God? Let's be honest. Life in this broken world is hard. To quote Paul David Tripp, he says this, We are constantly dealing with disappointments, failures, frustrations of this world not operating the way God intended. We are always facing the unexpected. Daily, we are required to deal with things that we wouldn't have chosen for our life. I think his assessment of this, this broken world is spot on. Like, I think he's on to something. I mean, who would choose the death of a spouse, of a parent, of a child? Who would choose being diagnosed with cancer or, or COVID? Who would choose being the victim of, of rape or molestation or the victim of a shooting or a stabbing? Who would choose these things? Church, the difficulties and troubles of life in the fallen world are enough to make anyone lose faith in God. But you see, we serve a God that is much bigger than our problems. Look, is he not able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us? 
he's able to preserve our faith when we find ourselves in, in uh, times of difficulty. It is imperative that we trust God. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 14, uh, 14 verse 1. In these words that Jesus, he speaks to his disciples. Remember back in John chapter 13, he just informed his disciples that he was about to leave them. That he's about to make his way to the cross. And, you know, of course, naturally, because they love Jesus, they were discouraged. Right? They were troubled. But he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Not me, but Christ. I will let you down. But believe in God, believe also in Christ. Israel had, had been given many reasons to trust God during that journey uh, to the promised land. God delivered the people from slavery. Right? He performed many miracles and signs and wonders. He provided for them every single day of their journey. In the first three verses of chapter 21, we see that God was with the people as they fought against the king of Arad. And this was their first victory in battle. Verse 3 says, And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites. This victory should have given them confidence that they could trust God. Let's consider all that God has done in the course of this world. You've got to start with the fact that he actually created it, right? But look at all that he's done to preserve it, to sustain it. He upholds it. Now let's make it personal. Consider all that God has done in your life. From the moment you were born, all the way up until March 6, 2022. What more does he have to do for you to trust him? Has he not already given you his precious son, Jesus Christ? And he did that while we were sinners. Yeah. Yeah. So if God has given us what is most precious to him while we were sinners, now that we have been reconciled by the blood of Christ, surely we can trust him to guide us through this wilderness of life to the promised land. Amen? Amen. Let us not be guilty of unbelief like the wilderness generation. All right, so we see that the people... We're impatient, but we also see that the people complain. They complain. Look at verse 5. It reads, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Everybody say complain. Ask your neighbor, are you a complainer? I'm guilty of it. I recently came across this story about a monk who joined a, min- a monastery and he took a vow of silence. You may have heard this before. After the first 10 years, his superior calls him in and he asked him, he said, do you have anything to say? The monk replied, the food is bad. After another 10 years, the monk again, he comes before his superior and he has opportunity to voice his thoughts. The monk said, the bed is hard. Another 10 years goes by. His superior asks him again, do you have anything to say? And the monk replied, I quit. 
And the superior responded, and he said, well, I'm, I'm not surprised. You've done nothing but complain since you've been here. Look, this was Israel's disposition. Let's not forget that they were slaves in Egypt. God freed them from slavery. And yet, the moment they stepped out of Egypt, this, all that they, this was all that they did on their way. On their journey, that's all that they did was complain. Verse 5 is just one of many complaints. Nothing that they had was ever good enough. Now, is it wrong to complain to God? Absolutely not. It's not wrong to complain to God. I can show you countless examples in the Psalms where the writers, like, they they brought their complaints to God. They voiced their concerns to God. But you see, the difference in our text is that the people weren't complaining to God, but they were complaining about God. And that is a sin. That's a sign of unbelief. They spoke against God. They spoke against the one God appointed. A complainer is one who is discontented with his or her lot in life. A complainer is never grateful. Nothing they have is ever good enough. Was that not true of Israel in the wilderness? I wonder, is this true of you today? Are you a complainer? You see, God met their needs as he provided them with food and drink, but it wasn't good enough. They called it worthless. I wonder, do, do we consider the things that God has given us, do we consider those things worthless? When we look around at what other people have and we don't have that, and we're just like not satisfied with the things that God has so graciously given us. Their complaints about God revealed their lack of trust in God. To complain about God is to doubt his goodness. God, if you're a good God, why would you bring us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? I think our first parents, Adam and Eve, were guilty of doubting God's goodness when they were deceived by Satan. They probably thought in their minds, if you are a good God, why would you place us in the garden and forbid us from, to, uh, from eating from this, this one particular tree? And don't we entertain Satan's lies in the same way today? God, if you're a good God, why do we not have a church building yet? God, if you're a good God, why is there pain and suffering in the world? Why is Ukraine being bombed every day? Why is my bank account empty? Why do I feel like I'm barely getting by in life? Why am I rejected by friends and family for my faith in Christ? Why do I feel alone? Why is my family dysfunctional and falling apart? These things sound familiar? Here's a simple truth for you to ponder. God is good, and he can be trusted. Being a complainer, let's look at it like this. Being a complainer will damage your your Christian witness to the world. Who would be attracted to a religion whose adherents are dissatisfied in life and who do nothing but complain and grumble all the time. Think about that. This world is always watching us. As Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he said to do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, when you complain, you're not letting your light shine. Church, trust in God. Let your light shine so that your heavenly Father may be glorified. So we see Israel's unfaithfulness, right, and them being impatient, and them being, and uh, them, them complaining. So now I don't want to turn it a little bit. I want to look at God's faithfulness. Right, God's faithfulness is displayed in this passage in two ways. One, he's faithful to judge. Two, he's faithful to save. So, let's look at verse 6. Verse 6, we see his faithfulness to judge. It reads, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. This was God's response to the people's unbelief. He sent fiery serpents that bit the people, and this caused many people to die in the wilderness as a result of God's judgment. There are not many certainties in this life, but one thing I know for certain is that God will judge sinners, that he will judge sin. There's no way around it. Let's look at it like this. Let's say someone murdered your family member. They were found guilty of murder by a jury of their peers, but the judge who presides over the case, he decides to, to let the guy just go. If you were in the courtroom and you witnessed this sort of injustice, you would cry out to the authorities, to the media, to whoever would listen, to tell them that, look, this judge does not deserve to be on the bench presiding over cases. He's unjust. We never have to worry about that with God. The Bible has much to say about God, the judge. Psalm chapter 50, verse 4, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Psalm chapter 50, verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, Abraham, he asks this rhetorical question. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God can't be bribed. He can't be fooled. He will judge the people with equity. Now, on the one hand, like, this is, this is good news. Right? All the injustices that ever took place, all the wrongs that have been committed, those things will be dealt with one day. But this is bad news to have God as your judge is a frightening thing when you are a sinner. Yeah. Again, look at verse 6 of our text and see how it ended for the many in the wilderness. They died. They died in their unbelief. It is true that in some cases, God's judgments are postponed. We have to remember God is patient. But you see, many people... They, they presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's Romans chapter 2, verse 4. In other words, people think because God's judgments are not executed in a swift manner that they're getting away with the sin that they've committed. If you're not a Christian, 
Let me give you this warning. The longer you live on this earth without putting your faith in Jesus Christ, the longer you continue to reject Jesus Christ, you are just storing up wrath for the day of judgment. God's patience will run out one day. It ran out for the many in the wilderness. But we also see in our text, in this same text, that his patience led some to repentance. Look at verse 7. It says, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. You see, by God's grace, some of the people, they have eyes to see their rebellion and the severity of God's judgment. They repent. Well, what exactly is repentance? What does it consist of? Wayne Grudem, he helps us to define repentance in this way. He says, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and walk in obedience to Christ. Let me repeat that. A heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and walk in obedience to Christ. Genuine repentance consists of, first, an acknowledgement of sin. Without acknowledging that you are a sinner, there's no genuine repentance. That's the first step. We have to come to the realization that we are sinners. But it also consists of recognizing that sin is always against God first. God is always the offended party. Like when we sin, we offend this God that has created us, this holy and awesome God that cares for us, that loves us, and we rebel against this God. And when we recognize that sin is against God first, this should cause us to actually grieve and mourn over our sin because we, we, we've broken his law. And then this should lead to us turning from our sin. Turning from our sin Not to turn back to it, that would be to do a 360. But repentance is more like a 180. You're going in a different direction. So you're turning from your sin, and you're turning toward God in faith. And why do we turn toward God in faith? Well, who can forgive sins but God alone? So we see the people, they acknowledge their sin, they confess it, and then they ask to be released from the judgment that God sent in the form of these fiery serpents. Notice the people, they have to go through a mediator. Sinners can't just directly approach a holy God without a mediator. If you try to, you will be consumed because our God is a consuming fire. So the people, they go through Moses, the mediator, he stands in the gap, Right? He intercedes for them. Look at verse 7. It says, so Moses prayed for the people. Well, in the New Testament, we come to learn that there is but one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Because of Christ's finished work on the cross, the way to God is now open for all to come in. If you're not a Christian, that means... Your sins have not been forgiven. That means you have no mediator. That is bad news for you, my friend. But 
We love good news, don't we? God has provided you with a mediator and an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Turn to him, put your faith in Christ, and draw near to God. For Jesus has said, he says in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not through me, but Christ, right? So is Christ your mediator? So we see that God is faithful to judge. But we also see that God is faithful to save. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. It reads this way. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Sick people feel a need to be healed of their sickness. Depending on how severe our condition of sickness is, we might seek medical treatment from a physician so we can be healed. Think of the worst physical sickness or condition there is to be diagnosed with. Right, maybe some, some type of terminal cancer or AIDS, something along those lines. Now, I want you to give me your full attention. If you sleep, please wake up. If you sit next to somebody that's asleep, please tap them. Wake them up. I'm almost done. So let's say you're diagnosed with this, this terminal disease. Naturally, we would think that our greatest problem would be the physical disease that we're living with. Any physical disease or sickness we encounter should always point to the greater sickness, and that is sin. You see, just as the people were bitten by serpents in the wilderness, so we have been bitten by sin. Our greatest problem is never physical. It is spiritual. Our greatest problem is never outside of us, but rather inside of us. You don't believe me? Believe Jesus. In Mark chapter 17... You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it. Verses 14 through 23. Listen to what he says. He says, and he called the people. It says, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean, and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Brothers and sisters, we have a heart problem. Sin has defiled us from the inside out. It has caused us all spiritually to die, and then one day, physically, we will die. Mm -hmm. Not one individual in this room can say they have not been infected by sin because we are all sinners. I heard it said once that because you commit one sin, that doesn't make you a sinner. But the reason you sin is because you are. We do what is in accordance with our nature. 
with sinners. We need to be healed of this spiritual sickness or else we will die in our sins just like the many in the wilderness. But again, I have good news for us this morning. And that is God has provided a way for us to be healed. We see in our text that God instructs Moses to make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. Everyone who was bitten was then commanded to look upon the fiery serpent on the pole. And if they looked at the serpent, they would live. We see God providing the cure for their sickness. Notice the people didn't come up with this cure. They were powerless. They were sick. If not for God, they would have died just like the many who were bitten by the same snakes. So the same is true for us today. We are called to look not to a bronze serpent raised on a pole, but to look in faith to Jesus Christ, the one who was lifted up on a cross. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 reads, it says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Are you looking to Christ in faith this morning? Are you trusting in him? Or are you looking to yourself? You know, the concept of faith is so unnatural to us. It's so unnatural. The pride in us all rejects faith in God. The pride in us all rejects the notion of having to be dependent on someone else to earn God's favor. We often look to ourselves for salvation. We often trust in our own good works or performance. We think if I can just clean myself up, make myself look presentable, whatever that is, and then now God will accept me. We think we can make God our debtor, that we can put God in a position where he owes us salvation. Take heed to our passage this morning. The people in the wilderness were called called to trust in God's provision by looking in faith to the serpent on the pole. Well, God is calling you today to look to Christ. Receive the free gift of eternal life by looking to Jesus. Let me close by sharing this story I recently read. It was during the Spanish-American War. Uh, Clara Barton was overseeing the work of the Red Cross in Cuba. One day, Colonel Theodore Roosevelt came to her. He wanted to buy food for his sick and wounded Rough Riders, but she refused to sell him any. So naturally, Roosevelt was perplexed. His men needed the help. He was prepared to pay for the food out of his own funds. So when he asked someone why he couldn't buy the supplies, he was told, Colonel, just ask. Just ask for it. So a smile broke out over Roosevelt's face. Now he understood that the provisions were not for sale. All he had to do was simply ask, and they would be given freely. Brothers and sisters, so it is with salvation. The feast has already been prepared. The cure for your sinful condition has already been provided. The question that remains is, are you going to receive it by faith? Israel had to wait some 40 years to enter the promised land of Canaan. And as 
the story goes, eventually God brings them into the promised land through Joshua, but they don't remain in the land. Right? Because of disobedience, they were exiled out of the land. So as it stands today, the people of God are traveling through this wilderness of, a wilderness of life as pilgrims and exiles, awaiting the day of Christ's return so that we may inherit the promised land of heaven. But we must trust the captain of our salvation to lead and guide us there. He knows every detour along the journey. Therefore, we can trust him. Not trusting in God will cause you to miss the promised land of heaven. Look, one main application point I want you to leave with is simply this. We must persevere to the end. We must persevere to the end. And how do we persevere to the end? Simple. By looking to Christ. I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we see this wonderful cloud of witnesses. We see many faithful witnesses who lived their lives trusting in God to the very end. Till that race was over. All of these faithful saints trusting in God. And the writer of Hebrews, I think he uses Hebrews 11 to encourage his readers to persevere. Because you have to remember, his audience were tempted to turn away from Christ. Things were hard. They were being persecuted. So he encourages them to continue. Like, look at all of these clouds of witnesses. But he gives us the answer to how these faithful witnesses made it to the end. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 to close. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It reads this way, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If we're going to inherit the promised land of heaven, we're called to look to Christ, to look to him. I get it, we're often weak during this journey. It's a long journey. But remember, salvation is drawing close. We're closer than when we first believed. And we must continue to look to Christ. Yeah. And one day, we'll see everything with our eyes. We will no longer need faith because we'll be there with him. Let that sink in. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. Lord, we thank you just for your faithfulness, God. Even when we're unfaithful, Lord, we thank you for being a faithful God who always delivers on his promises. So I pray, God, when we're tempted to distrust you in any way, when we're tempted to lose faith in you, oh, Lord, may you remind us of Christ. May you take our eyes and cast them to Calvary's cross that we might behold Christ 
that our gaze might be trans, that our, as we look upon Christ, that we might be transformed. Lord, continue by your grace, Lord, to lead us to the promised land. I pray, Lord, that you will strengthen our faith by your word every single day of the journey that we might inherit the promised land. You've already given us your precious Holy Spirit as a guarantee. So may we be reminded of that, that you are with us, that you're very much present with us during this journey. Pray that every heart in this room will be encouraged and that everyone in this room would make it to the promised land. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.